If you dig the twisted, admire the outlandish, and are enamored by the unusual, you're in the right place. True crime, the supernatural, the unexplained, now you're speaking our language. If you agree, join us as we dive into the darker side. You know, because it's more fun over here. Welcome to Total Conundrum. Warning, some listeners may find the following content disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. <laughs> Greetings, fellow conundrum enthusiasts. It's your favorite podcast host, Jeremy and Tracy, back for another mind-bending episode of Total Conundrum. That's right, Jeremy. We're here to tickle your brain cells with the stories that'll leave you saying, wait, what? What just happened? Exactly. Today, folks, we've got not one, but two perplexing tales that'll have you questioning everything. First up, we're diving into the mysterious disappearance of Brandy Rosin. But that's not all, folks. Later in the episode, get ready to lose your appetite as we explore the chilling legend of the cannibal chef. Oh, that's a story that will make you rethink your dinner choice tonight, for sure. Two stories, two hosts and countless conundrums to unravel. It's a wild ride of emotions and conundrums today. So whether you're into the baffling brandy rosin case, or you're up for the stomach-churning saga of the cannibal chef, we've got you covered. But hey, no mystery would be complete without a touch of humor, right, Jeremy? Absolutely, Tracy. And if you ever find yourself laughing during today's episode, well, that's just our way of keeping the goosebumps at bay. So grab your detective hats, your sense of humor, and your favorite snacks. It's time for episode 11 of Total Conundrum. But before we dive in, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that notification bell so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to give us a thumbs up if you enjoyed this episode. That's right, Jeremy. Also, a rating and review would mean the world to us if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Last episode, we discussed collaborating with a few different podcasts and how we will be sharing their amazing trailer with all of you in future episodes. So make sure you continue to show them some love as well. Before we dive into this episode, we want to play a trailer brought to you by a mom and daughter duo. They sip mimosas while telling their stories and invite you to do the same. Thank you, Murder and Mimosas, for collaborating with us. Everyone go check out Murder and Mimosas podcast and show the love and support that you show us. Hoorah. Hoorah. Welcome to Murder and Mimosas. I'm Shannon. And I'm Danica. Together as a mother and daughter duo, we host Murder Mimosas, true crime podcast with an episode released every Saturday at 10 a.m., so you can listen to it during prime brunch time. While we don't require a mimosa, we do highly recommend one. All of our episodes are cases that we found really interesting or just really stuck with us because we hope they'll do the same for you. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So, as we stated, I'm going to be kicking it off with a story about Brandy Rosin and Yay, so excited. <laughs> this is from a documentary that I watched and it's a multi-part documentary and it's called How I Caught My Killer. Another tragic and depressing case. Thank you, Tracy. I'm sorry, but <laughs> these uh documentaries or these stories are how the victim helped catch their killer from beyond the grave. Ooh, that's exciting. Yeah, there's a little bit of a twist to it. Let's get it on. Get it on. Let's get it on. Ooh. (laughs) So like I said, this is from How I Caught My Killer, Season 1, Episode 3. 20-year-old Brandy Stevens Rosin from Youngstown, Ohio, loved texting and connecting with family and friends. She never put her phone down and used it nonstop. Then, yeah, that summarizes most teenagers. Yes. Then all of a sudden, one day, on May 17th, 2012, all messages from Brandy stopped. Uh-oh. 
Yeah. That's never a good sign. No. Brandy's friend, Christy Horvett, realized that she had not heard from Brandy all day. However, she continued to call and send her texts with no response. It was like her phone was off, which she found odd because Brandy's phone was never off. We teenagers never leave them anywhere. No, they're always attached to their hand, probably more so than the hip. (laughs) (laughs) Brandy was still trying to figure out life and leaned on her friend Christy for help and advice, for she was newly out as gay. However, she often felt judged and would take rumors to heart. Brandy's mom, Carrie, described Brandy as a very strong individual. However, Youngstown was not very accepting of the gay community, and they were often pushed to the back and not accepted, and this devastated Brandy. When Brandy leaves for college, she started living her best life. When Sarah Van Allen met Brandy, she stated that Brandy was blooming. She was confident in herself. She was ready to date. However, she said that she was a hopeless romantic with much love to give, and she wanted to find the love of her life. As we all do. Right. Sarah stated that Brandy was using dating apps to meet people online and would often meet these people alone. That's how we met. (laughs) Yeah, it was. From one geek to another. One geek to another, baby. And it's all history from there. When Brandy stopped answering her phone and texting, she instantly wondered where she had gone and if she had gone to meet someone that she did not know. Brandy's mom, Carrie, worried, reached out to Brandy's best friend, Rayon, for she was supposed to go to her house the day she disappeared. Rayon informed Carrie. Isn't that fabric? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess it's not spelt the same, but. (laughs) Ray, Raynon? Raynon? I don't know. You just go with it. Just go with the flow, baby. (laughs) Get her done. Names are hard. Words are hard. (laughs) So Raynon informed Carrie that she did not come over that day. Brandy was supposed to be staying the night at her grandparents' But when Carrie reached out to them, they informed her that she did not come home that night either and that her backpack with her medication was still there. Uh Uh-oh. Brandy was a type 1 diabetic and could not go more than one day without taking her insulin. Yeah. You don't leave the house without that. That is a major red flag. So even more panicked, Carrie reached out to everyone and anyone she could think of but no one had heard from her or seen her. She checked her social media and there was no activity. She knew instantly that something was wrong. Carrie successfully files a missing person report on Brandy. However, she's considered an adult, so the police did not act. Of course they didn't. I mean, why would they? It's, I mean, when you're dealing especially with a diabetic who has to have their insulin. Right. You can't go without that. Right. There, there's major red major red flags. Come on, people. Well, her phones. Her phone, her social media, her everything. Yeah. Not normal. Right. So three more days pass, and no one has still heard from Brandy. However, there is a break in the case. An alarming text was uncovered from Brandy on the day she disappeared. Christy received a text from Rayon, Brandy's best friend. She told Christy that Brandy had sent her a text on Thursday, the day she vanished, stating that she was going to Cocoraton, Pennsylvania. She told her to not tell anyone, and Rayon was covering for her. But after it became more clear that something had truly happened to Brandy, she broke her promise and shared the text information with Christy. I wish that... You know, hindsight being twenty twenty, break that trust earlier. I mean, three days, that's a long time. Well, and it's odd if it's told by somebody else. Right. You know, I mean, why wouldn't she have just told her, I don't know her name. Rayon <laughs> or Brandy? Brand, uh, no. Oh, Christy, the, Christy. the third friend? Okay, yeah. Yep. The one that's looking for her. Yep. So, you know, why wouldn't uh, Brandy have told Christy? what her plan was, if that was a thing. Right. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why why only Rayon was the only one that got the text from her. But then again, you know, the going back to the phone, I mean, would 
would she run away without her phone and her medicine still? I doubt it. Not yeah, not no. from what it sounds like with this girl. So Brandy had sent the address to Rayon that she was going to, but also in another text she told her that she had a funny feeling. Then shortly after, she sent the text saying that she was given the wrong address and was headed home. The string of text made Christy very nervous. So the address, Rayon has the address, but Brandy said that it was the wrong address and she was heading home, but she never made it home. So Christy then acts independently since the police would not follow up on this lead. They were still not investigating the case, so she got into her car by herself, put the address in the GPS, and started out to find Brandy. She knew she had to go there to see where she went and to search for her. Good on you, Christy, for trying to do something to, you know, move forward with this case. But girl, don't go alone. Don't ever go alone. Brandy's ex-girlfriend, Jade, lives in Kokoratan. Brandy met Jade on a dating app. Their relationship was very hot and cold, on again, off again. First they would fight, then they would make up. But even her friends said it was enough. Finally, after a year, their relationship came to a cold and cruel end in 2011. Brandy came home from work and Jade was gone along with the $300 she had taken from Brandy and Brandy's iPod. Brandy struggled for a few months and was very down after this breakup. Christy reached out to Jade to see if she had heard from Brandy. Jade told her that she had not seen or heard from her. Christy said to her that she was heading to the address that Brandy was going to the night she disappeared. Jade told her to be careful because people around here don't like gays. Philadelphia had a rise in violence and hate crimes against the LGBTQ community over the last decade. Christy began to worry and thoughts were running through her head. Was it possible Brandy could have encountered someone who didn't like gay people? If Brandy was not visiting Jade, could she have been catfished? Could they have lured her out into the country and hurt her? There were so many questions going through Christy's head. Could be anything. Right. That's why you need the police. The police need to be doing something. They need to get out there doing eating asses. And I don't understand. In most of these cases that we do, there's... Yeah, they're, they're just not there. No. Christy was out in the middle of nowhere. It was very desolate. She did not see any sign of Brandy or her car. She was getting very nervous because she was driving down dirt roads and her GPS seemed kind of off. She can't see the addresses for the houses and they're so far off the road. As she approached the address in her GPS, it feels very eerie. The GPS led her to a church in the middle of nowhere instead of the address that she had entered. She wondered if that's where Brandy's GPS had also led her. Was Brandy set up? Was she taken from here? Again, so many unanswered questions. Four days later, on May 21st, police pick up a signal from Brandy's wait, phone. did you say police? Oh, yeah, just wait. Put a pin in it, because... I'll put a pin in it. Come on now, that ain't even bullshit. That's bullshit. <laughs> It's our bullshit button. (laughs) The signal was coming from the small Pennsylvania town of Meadville, 70 miles north of Youngstown. Police were still not actively searching for her. Can I get a cup of mead, please? (laughs) They passed this information on to Brandy's mom. Carrie could not understand why the police were still not looking for her daughter. Regardless, they had a glimmer of hope. Maybe Brandy turned off her phone and perhaps she just lost it, or maybe the battery was dead. Carrie and Christy immediately drove to where Brandy's phone had last pinged. It led them to a dead-end street that had a wastewater treatment center. Her mom called her phone repeatedly and nothing The ping literally led them to a dead end. Hey, did somebody fart? (laughs) The water treatment facility. (laughs) (laughs) It was a little stinky. Maybe I was thinking of uh, wastewater. (laughs) Yeah, I think this was more like this uh, city water. I think I'm not. Oh, no, it does. 
it does say it had a wastewater treatment center. So oh, yeah, you were yeah. right. It's a smelly neighborhood over there. <laughs> I couldn't imagine living there. It literally led them to a stinky dead end. <laughs> so they expanded their search to hospitals, stores, restaurants. They handed out missing person flyers at those locations. They went door to door as well. Their searches came up empty and they were back to square one with the police still not engaged in the search. Of course. Of course. On the fifth day, Carrie and Christy are determined to find the address. So they return to Kokoratan where mother's intuition or maybe a better GPS, a road that previously led them to nowhere, now leads them to a house. Nice. Yes. When they pulled up to the house, there was an older man on the stoop with Jade and Ashley Barber beside him. Ding, 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 ding. <sighs> Uh-oh. Yep. Ashley was Jade's current girlfriend. Strangely, the address led them to the house where they were staying. Stranger yet, why did Jade not mention this to Christy when she contacted yeah. her the oh, other day? Oh, that's my address. Right. Hmm. I mean, what the hell are you trying to cover up there, girl? She's covering something up. I can smell it. I can smell the stink coming from that. That wastewater treatment? (laughs) Carrie approached Jade and asked Jade where Brandy was. Jade told her that she never came there and she never saw her. Carrie called bullshit. Ashley got defensive of Jade, put her arm in front of her to protect her, and told Carrie to not talk to her that way. Christy could not believe how distasteful it was to act like a tough guy to Carrie when she was missing her daughter. Her initial reaction to Ashley was that she was not a good person at all. Carrie repeated that Brandy texted that she was coming to their address. This is the last place she was supposed to be, and she questioned them on how they could say that she never made it there. She was not buying their shit at all. All. I wouldn't be either. Good on you, Carrie. Good on you. <laughs> After Carrie confronted them with the text information, Jade surprisingly changed her story. That, oh, she was supposed to come there, but they never saw her, for they were at the hospital on Thursday. So that is how they did not ever see her. Ashley held up her arm, which was covered in bandages and a big solid bruise. At this point, Ashley's dad stepped in and reiterated that Brandy was not there. And at that point, Christy and Carrie left. How'd you get the bruise on your arm? Right. What's under all those bandages? Uh, it's a little suspicious. Very sus. Very oh sus. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. On May 22nd, a call came into the police station from the barber home. Ashley's mom called the police to report a car that she did not recognize parked in her garage. Mm. Sergeant John O'Day went to the barbers to investigate. When he arrived, he could see a blue Kia Rio in the garage. It was Brandy's car. Of course it was. Mm-hmm. O'Day recalled that the exterior and the interior of the vehicle was very clean. Christie stated that was a huge red flag. For Brandy always had cans, papers, and clothes sprinkled throughout her car. It was rarely <laughs> clean. And guess what the cans were? Mountain Dew? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> O'Day questioned the girls, and then they stated that while Brandy was there, she received a call and started walking down the road to meet an unknown person. O'Day reassured them that Brandy was not in trouble. He just wanted to make sure that she was okay and not stranded in a ditch somewhere. They then claimed that Brandy did not want anyone to know where she was, and she asked them to cover for her while she was gone and not to say anything about the car. O'Day left satisfied that someone had picked up Brandy, and what they told him did not strike him odd at the time. I'm sorry, we're going to back up here. So, Brandy is missing. The police aren't doing anything. She has no medication. She has no medication. She has no phone. The address was the house that she went to. Right. Car sitting in the garage. The car. Immaculately clean. Yes. Is sitting in their freaking garage. They've changed their story. Three times. Umpteen times. times, But he left satisfied. 
with the story that they gave him. Not to mention the arm. Right. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> I'm just, seriously, can I just bitch slap some of these officers? Like, what were you thinking? <laughs> and where did they recruit these cops? I mean, are they like weathermen? They don't have to do their job and still have a job the next day? I mean, I can predict, I can predict it's going to rain in five minutes. And if it doesn't, I would still have a job if I was a weatherman. So I guess if I sit on my ass and eat donuts and not look for these missing women, then, you know, I say women plural because all of the cases in the world are men or children or whatever. Oh, it's just so infuriating. It's crazy. So Brandy's friend Sarah stated that there was a level of fear in the LGBTQ community and you don't want to go anywhere alone. But fear didn't cross Brandy's mind. So did her fearlessness lead her down that isolated road that day or did something more sinister happen to Brandy? I'm going to say two. Yes. Option B is where I'm going with this too. Carrie, Brandy's mom, received a call that Brandy's car was found and it was in her best interest to pick it up. Carrie told the police that she was not touching the car. She had been missing for six days and the girl said that she wasn't there and she never made it. However, now her car is found at their place and Brandy's not there. Shouldn't that raise some suspicion? Mm -hmm. You're right, Carrie. It should. All sorts of it. Carrie was fed up and took it upon herself to call the Cleveland FBI. Within an hour, state police returned to the barber home. You know, that's what I'm talking about. Right. Let's get some action here. Let's get the big guns involved. Yes. But Jade and Ashley were not there. They were gone. They gone? They gone. Oh, my God. They gone. The police are now looking into the case full force and are now searching for Brandy, Ashley, and Jade. Their pictures and descriptions were passed on to every law enforcement agency in the state. Trooper Joseph Stryley ended his shift and was driving home when he spotted Jade and Ashley. He approached the car that they were in and questioned them. Jade gave her real name and info. However, Ashley lied and gave a fake name. He kept pressing and she finally gave her real name and information. He then took him to the police station voluntarily to be interviewed. While the girls were being interviewed, officers searched the barber home looking for evidence of what happened to Brandy. About 30 yards from the barber home, they discovered freshly disturbed soil in the woods. The ground was loose and it was not compacted, indicating it was newly dug. They investigated the area further, called in the local medical examiner, Scott Shell, to aid in the investigation. Shell said it was about a 10 foot by 10 foot area that appeared to be all freshly disturbed ground. Shell requested that they bring in scene lighting for it was starting to get dark and they dug out the dirt handfuls at a time. Approximately 20 inches down in the dirt, they found Brandy. Shell said that he could immediately see that there was distinct signs of a struggle and a battle. Brandy's mom, Cindy, was notified at 2 a.m. that they had found Brandy's body. Trigger warning, the details I'm going to tell you exhibit extreme violence. Both Jade and Ashley say that they will tell the truth about what happened. However, The truth is absolutely horrifying. Jade said that when Brandy arrived, she met her at the edge of the woods. She told her she wanted to show her a fort in the woods. As Brandy entered the woods, Jade hit Brandy in the head several times with a shovel. They then tied a rope around her neck and strangled her. Then they rolled her into a pre-dug grave, took a big rock, threw it on her face, and buried her. They are just pure evil. Yeah. After the autopsy is completed, the police learn that there was dirt and mud in her lungs and bronchial tube. Which means she was still alive when they buried her. Poor Brandy was buried alive. I just, my stomach, my heart, my heart is in my ass right now. I mean, it's just, it's so devastating. It is. This poor young woman fought with everything she had and was buried alive. 
And you keep doing these stories. <laughs> we do have a true crime podcast, baby. <laughs> yeah, but my stories are mostly entertaining. You know? <laughs> Yours are just freaking depressing. I'm sorry. I'll I'll try to do something more fun next time. Please do. Okay. I will uh, try to do something more supernatural. How's that? Sounds great. All right. Otherwise, I'm going to have to start becoming an alcoholic. Start <laughs> drinking a lot. You don't drink at all. What are you talking I'm about? I'm going to start. <laughs> start a podcast and your husband turns into an alcoholic. <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> it was determined that she indeed fought back. She had multiple broken nails. She had numerous scratches, abrasions, and contusions. Her skull was fractured in three spots as well. So she went down with the fight. So hence why Ashley had all of those marks on her arm and everything. Right. Jade and Ashley did admit to planning and carrying out the attack and murder of Brandy and claimed that they would plead guilty to it. However, after the two are arrested, their journals are discovered and reveal horrible insight to the minds of these young killers. Ashley's journal dated 521-2012. Dear Miss Rosin, I fucking murdered your 20-year-old mistake. I beat her head into the ground. I have never felt so alive. I just want to do it again and again. Why lie? I'm addicted. I don't feel guilty. I now feel like I have a purpose. Can you believe that shit? It's crazy. I mean, somebody put her in a damn rubber room with a straight jacket. You know, sometimes you think, are these just kids acting up? But then. I mean, I know they say that they, their frontal lobes aren't developed until you're in your early 20s and well, stuff, but. I think, I think hers is missing completely. Completely. So now we have Jade's journal entry, dated 521 2012. Yesterday, was the beginning of a whole new life. I found my calling, a new addiction. Do I feel guilty? Not an ounce. I'm proud. A new addiction of killing. That's that's pretty fucked up. Pretty fucked up. Brandy's case stuns the nation and rocks this community to its core. Although it's rarely carried out, capital punishment is legal in Pennsylvania, However, both girls attempted a plea deal to avoid receiving the death penalty. On October 31st, 2013, one and a half years after the murder, Jade pleaded guilty and received life without parole. Two weeks later, Ashley pleaded guilty and also received life without parole. Brandy was a warm, kind-hearted soul who always had her phone in her hands, texting and making plans with her friends, Staying connected with people she loved, ultimately, that connection helped solve her murder. At least they got a good sentence, you know. I was worried that uh, when you were going to start talking about their sentencing that they were going to get off in like four years or something. and then Right. Then my mind would explode. and Right. You know. No, as far as I know, from when I wrote the story, they were still in jail, so. Yeah, I'm sure they'll, they'll never get out, so, I mean... Just the uh, messages in their journals right, is enough to keep them there. Right. And some of the sources that I got this information from were IMDb, the Hulu documentary, How I Caught My Killer, WFMJ.com, and thecinemaholic.com, and Murderpedia.org. Murderpedia. So that's my story. That's a good no, it's not. <laughs> no, nope, it's not. it's not. Well, guess what? Are we going down a darker hole now? Well, it don't get no better. <laughs> I can tell you that much. So you give me crap about writing these dark stories, and what do you got for us? Hey, you made me do this podcast. <laughs> Ain't my fault. <laughs> if I remember from our introduction, I think we have uh, something about somebody eating the long pig. Hey, come on now. <laughs> Let's just get into this story and not just imagine what is in this thing, okay? Okay, so maybe I'm wrong. Well, I don't know. <laughs> um, 
So my story, if you haven't heard, is called The Cannibal Chef. Long pig. The murder of Monica Burrell, a 26-year-old woman, remains shrouded in uncertainty to this day. Daniel Rakowitz, along with potential other accomplices, has been known to be involved. On August 19, 1989, Burrell and Rakowitz engaged in a heated altercation during which Rakovich struck her fatally in the throat with a metal rod. Ouch. Following her death, Burl's body was dismembered. Okay. Dismembered. Yes. Okay. Which takes a lot of work. A lot of work, yeah. And the remains were subjected to boiling in the kitchen of her... Lower East Side apartment. So Rakovitz, a prominent figure in the neighborhood, and... He was a prominent figure? Well, in his tent city... Okay. ...that occupied Tompkins Square Park at the time, openly discussed Burl's disappearance when questioned by concerned neighbors. Surprisingly, although news of her death seemed to circulate... Within the community, no one reported it to the police. Not a single soul. Nobody reported her missing at all? Nope. So we can't even blame the police this time. It's her friends suck. Correct. Yep. Well, the neighbors, too. Neighbors, family. Everybody. Everyone else sucks. Because he was basically telling everybody. I don't think a lot of people actually believed him, though, but... Surprisingly, although the news of her death seemed to circulate within the community, no one reported it to the police, and it would be nearly a month before an arrest was made in connection to the murder. Long, long time. Yeah. Yeah. Among the grisly rumors surrounding Burl's murder is the claim that Rakowitz cooked her remains in a pot of soup and, and fed it to the homeless residents. <gasps> In Tompkins Square Park. No. Yeah. No freaking way. He fed it to other people without them knowing? Yep. Long pig soup. Oh, my. With a little Chianti and some fava beans. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That is horrifying. Oh, I am speechless, <laughs> which never happens. Oh, my God. So. And you're talking about my story? (laughs) (laughs) It is possible that this rumor originated from Rakowitz's habit of cooking pots of food, often shared them with squatters inhabiting Thompson Square. Well, how many other people did he feed them? I don't think any others, but you just don't know. You don't know. I mean, he seemed... To do that pretty effortlessly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get into that. Okay, I put a pin in it. We'll get into it. (laughs) However, during Rakowitz's trial, one of the homeless individuals testified that he discovered a human fingertip in a bowl of soup (laughs) served by Rakowitz. I'm going to have to move my garbage can closer. (laughs) You need a barf bag? (laughs) My mouth is salivating. I'm going to puke. Although Rakowitz admitted to dismembering Burl, he denied feeding her remains to others. Uh, then where did the fingertip come from? Uh, maybe himself. I don't know. <laughs> At the time of the murder, Rakowitz was 28 years old, and he and Burl had initially crossed paths in early August of 1989. While sharing a joint in Topkins Park... Rakowitz, a drug dealer and part-time dishwasher without a permanent residence, relied on his friend's couch for accommodations. So she shared her couch with him? Mm, No. No? I don't think it said that, did it? Well, I was just assuming because he was in her apartment, so I went under the assumption. I was like, oh, that dirty bastard, she gave him a couch to sleep on. No, this was some of his so-called friends. Okay, sorry. Burl, a Swiss national, had recently relocated to New York from a small town in the Swiss Alps. 
She pursued studies at the Martha Graham Center of Contemporary Dance and supported herself by working in a topless bar. The two became romantically involved, and Rakowitz swiftly moved into Burl's Lower East Side apartment, which she shared with several other people. Their relationship as roommates and lovers endured for a few weeks, until Burl decided that Rakowitz needed to vacate the premise. The conversation escalated into an argument during which, according to police reports, Rakowitz struck Burl in the throat and subsequently carried her to the bathtub, where he repeatedly stabbed her with a carving knife, inflicting more than 30 wounds. Jeez. Little overkill there, buddy. Yeah, he went a little cray-cray. Weeks after the murder, Rakowitz brazenly discussed Burl's death while roaming Tompkins Square Park, divulging the details to anyone who would listen. Eventually, someone alerted the authorities, prompting an investigation that commenced on September 8th of 1989. On September 13th, Police arrested Rakowitz at the Brooklyn restaurant where he worked. Prompted by a woman who claimed to have seen Burl's lifeless body, Rakowitz ultimately led the police to a storage locker in the Port Authority bus terminal where he had concealed Burl's skull and other bones inside of a bucket of kitty litter. In 2004, during Rakowitz's attempt to secure release from psychiatric custody, his ex-wife came forward to share details about their relationship. A psychiatrist's testimony documented her claim, stating that Rakowitz had married her when she was only 14 and exhibited controlling behavior, even chaining her to the refrigerator during his work hours. First off, um, 14 years old. I don't know how old he was, but ew. Yeah, I'm not sure. It doesn't say. And chaining her to the refrigerator while he worked? Kind of kooky. It's beyond kooky. According to his ex-wife, Rakowitz boasted about previous acts of violence, including decapitating a dog, strangling a prostitute, and gouging out a woman's eye with a screwdriver. Oh, my God. Hey. Yeah. Crazy dude. The acting director of the Kirby Forensic Psychiatric Center, where Rakowitz was held, testified about his continued display of controlling tendencies, even within a maximum security hospital setting. The director described how Rakowitz would hoard newspapers and selectively distribute them to the patients he deemed deserving of access to the current events. What? Paper hoard. Oh, my. Over the years, Rakowitz provided conflicting accounts of the murder. Initially, after his arrest, he took full responsibility for Burl's death providing gruesome details about the dismemberment process. He utilized his culinary skills to detach her head, drain her body of blood, and boil the flesh off her bones in a large pot. Subsequently, Rakowitz changed his narrative, claiming that he was only involved in disposing of the body. At one point, he even alleged that former roommates had assisted him although they both exercised their right to remain silent during police questioning, and neither was charged. Rakowitz even attempted to distance himself from the crime altogether, asserting that he was merely taking the fall for the other bad elements. What, one of his other personalities? No, the other roommates. (laughs) (laughs) The roommate's in his head. (laughs) I'm just going to keep going with it. (laughs) After a nine-day trial, Rakowitz was found not guilty. What? By reasons of insanity. Oh, my fucking God. On February 22nd, 1991, addressing the jury after the verdict, 
Rakowitz expressed a desire to share a joint with them. He wanted to smoke them up, yo. Uh, the yeah. jury? <laughs> the jury, yeah. <laughs> he wanted to get on their good side. <laughs> he wanted some of that marijuana. Acknowledging the overwhelming evidence presented by the prosecution, he confidently stated that he would soon be released and would sell marijuana to bring the true culprits of the crime to justice. <laughs> Despite Rakowitz's preference for imprisonment over psychiatric care to avoid medication, he was mandated to reside at the Kirby Forensic Psychiatric Center. In 1992, the Burl murder case was reopened following a report suggesting the involvement of cult members in assisting Rakowitz. Operating from the East Village storefront, the Church of the Realized Fantasy, led by a known drug dealer named Michael Caesar, was implicated. The cult, described as a communal marijuana sex church <laughs> engaged in drug use and sexual activities. Law enforcement authorities alleged that the cult participated in Rakowitz's crime as part of a satanic ritual possibly influenced by occult philosopher Alistair Crowley, who advocated for Satanism and human sacrifice. Crowley, he was the <laughs> the devil on basically the, in supernatural as well. Yeah, <laughs> Crowley. <laughs> Two years after the murder, one cult member named Randy Esterday was arrested and charged with aiding in the crime. In 1995, Rakowitz underwent a sanity trial to determine his continued placement in a psychiatric facility. Despite no longer using cannabis, the jury concluded that Rakowitz remained mentally ill and not of sound mind in 2004. He had another opportunity for limited freedom or a transfer to a less secure facility. The assistant to the state attorney general testified that Rakowitz exhibited pathological lying, a characteristic associated with antisocial behavior. The witness further asserted that Rakowitz showed no remorse for Burl's murder and the lack of understanding of the circumstances leading to it. As a result, the jury ruled that Rakowitz should remain at the Kirby Forensic Psychiatric Center on Ward Island in New York City. Every time you say Kirby, I think vacuums. <laughs> yeah, he was sentenced to the Kirby vacuum factory. <laughs> And he has to suck every day <laughs> for the rest of his life. The the man, I just, I can't even fathom. Yeah, he is a loco. Absolutely. Born and raised in Rockport, Texas, Rakowitz spent his childhood under the care of his father, a deputy sheriff in Edna, Texas. At the age of 24, he left Texas and settled in the East Village in 1985. Notorious for openly selling cannabis and methamphetamines in the park, Rakowitz also attracted attention due to his eccentricities, such as carrying a pet rooster on his shoulder <laughs> or, or pecking out of his, peeking out of his knapsack. <laughs> <laughs> Cock a doodle doo, <laughs> Oh, that was too good. <laughs> With a distinct Texan accent, he frequently delivered impassioned speeches about the power of Satan and crucifixion. Chris Karma, Karma, <laughs> oh boy, an individual who had an encounter with Rakowitz claimed that Rakowitz believed himself to be God. Karma also revealed that Rakowitz had established his own religion, referred to as the Church of the 966. 
The 966. The 966. Insert eye roll here. If you could see me, I just did the <laughs> biggest eye roll. Soon they will be able to. No. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not ready for video. You are ready for no. video. And engaged in animal sacrifice. Rakowitz would leave the number 966 on the walls, inscribed in chicken blood, as a symbolic calling card representing his distorted interpretation of Satan. As he believed that the number 666 had evolved over the generations to represent the modern embodiment of Satan, the tragic story of Monica Bertel's murder and its subsequent investigation revealed a disturbing series of events involving Daniel Rakowitz, his alleged accomplices, and the chilling details of the crime. The case serves as a haunting reminder of the darkness that can lurk within individuals and communities, as well as the complex nature of the human mind and its capacity for both extreme violence and deception. Wow. And that's my freaky, freaky case. That you got on me about my case. Whoa. Mine, mine was funny. We had some laughs. We Come did on. have some laughs like the cock on his shoulder. I mean, it, yeah, it's a little gory and it's a little weird. And, you know, a lot of it is not actually proven. Right. Other than the murder itself and the dismemberment. But. Yeah, the, the ever other eating people. of the lung pig is uh, questionable. Oh my god, just ugh. but I mean, they're homeless, they need to eat something, baby. <laughs> 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 just saying, geez, they would probably rather eat out of a dumpster than <laughs> eat a murder victim. I don't know. Heard it's pretty good. Well, they do say long pig tastes like, tastes like pork, but <laughs> not going to try it. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I probably won't either, but. No, no, yeah. nope, not happening. What well, can you do? That, so do we have any other news to share or anything like that? Any updates? Uh, well, the only thing I really have to say is uh, I did get, I put us in this group with, um, a bunch of other podcasters and stuff, a podcast support community on Facebook. Yeah. And I tell you what, I love the podcast community. The people out there are amazing. They are so helpful and they answer so many questions and share information and, you know, collaborating. And so we have lots more trailers that are going to be coming. We have some collab. We're going to have some crossover episodes in the near future. So that's about all I have to say about that. Just, you know, make sure you give these people love and continue to give us love as well. Yep. Show them lots of love, people. Come and on. Because of our last episode on The Exorcist, Jeremy and I have figured out that we are going to be a nun and a priest for Halloween this year. Ooh, yeah. So we'll be putting on our haunted house for the community and for we do our Halloween party for our friends. So we'll be dressed up and we'll have uh, our our Reagan um, animatronic, which will be pretty cool. I'm excited to kind of set up uh, that scene a little bit. And other than that, I uh, do you have any news? Oh, we're going to be going to um, do some video in the dark at Greenwood Cemetery this weekend. Yeah. And so yeah. we'll air that in a few weeks. That shall be fun. And then uh, another thing that I wanted to bring up, too, is that our uh, contact form on our webpage is currently working. Yay! So if anybody would like to submit user stories. Oh, yes. We need all sorts of stories. True crime, paranormal, cryptids. Ghost stories. Anything. All that we, good stuff. We want to start doing a monthly episode of listener stories. So please, please share your stories with yeah, us. Any story ideas that you have that you want us to maybe talk about, let us know, people. Yes, definitely. And uh, we will be staying at the Palmer House soon, too. We haven't figured out what date that's going to be yet, but um, that is going to be another uh, episode that we'll have some video on our Patreon for. Yep. We'll, we'll, of course, do the Palmer House story. 
on, you know, our main feed, but that's going to be some fun. It's going to be a good one. So we're excited. Well, I guess that's a wrap then. That is a wrap. All right, everybody. Love you. Goodbye. Smell you later. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thanks for hanging out with us here at Total Conundrum. Please make sure to check out our website and blog at totalconundrum.com. For news, upcoming events, merch, bloopers, and additional hysteria, you never know what will pop up, so be sure to follow along. If you want to show your support for Total Conundrum and gain access to all of our bonus content, please visit our Patreon page. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The links are available in our show notes. If you have any questions, comments, recommendations, or stories to share, please email us at contact at totalconundrum.com. Episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate the love. Keep on creeping on, mother cluckers.